My name is Katie, and I get to read um, God's word today. Uh, This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, first name, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba. Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandfather, grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Amazing job, and sorry for such a long passage. I like reread it, and I was like, oh my gosh, the names in this are ridiculous. <laughs> Way to go. Um, when Pastor Tim reached out and told me what the sermon series was about, God Saves, I knew almost immediately what I wanted to talk about. I love this story, uh, but I want to give you a little background on myself as to why this story is important to me. So I have spent the last 20 years or so, so, you know, the better part of my adult life um, in disability advocacy work. And so I've worked at a um, nonprofit where we did vocational training for adults with developmental disabilities and was there for about 13 years and found that it was a job I entered not knowing anything about at the age of 20 and fell in love with being friends and being known by people who experienced embodiments different than my own, and how much it taught me about the world and about God. And I had this this boss that was a pastor at a local Baptist church, and we would sit in our offices after a day of work, and we would have these theological conversations about disability, about life, about embodiment, and it, it just was, you know, so amazing to me, and it shaped my life. 
I then left that work and went into seminary, and I focused on disability theology for much of my work, and that's still what I write on and do right now and enjoy that. Um, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to look at God's um, word and see how he includes everyone, and not as like a secondary thought, but as like prime stories in how he moves creation and redemption along. And so this story for me is such a beautiful one because we often get it wrong. And I want to like walk into it going like God's doing something here that we kind of can't imagine if we only read it from like our ableist, able-bodied view of things, right? If, if I don't have disability as a lived experience, as one of the lenses I read these chapters with, I miss some really important things. And so I want to give you all a taste of what it looks like to include disability as a lens for interpreting scripture, especially one that has someone. I don't know if you noticed, but our author goes to great lengths to describe Mephibosheth as somebody with a disability, right? Like every time he's mentioned, you have to mention he's lame in his feet, right? Like every time. And we're going to look at other passages in 2 Samuel where this comes up again and again and again. So if you think that the disability is important, it is, okay? But I don't want us to ascribe meaning to it yet, okay? That's one of the first steps we have to take, is don't ascribe the meaning yet, okay? Because we often underestimate people with disabilities, right? Like, in society as a whole and often in our churches. I remember having a client that was um, deaf, and he came to us at like the age of 52, and he also had a diagnosis of mild mental retardation, so a cognitive disability. And his sister was like, but it's not true. And I was like, how long has he had this diagnosis? And she's like, his whole life, but it's not true. So we got to know this person, and we got to work with this person. And eventually this person became a manager of sorts because he was brilliant. He was deaf. But because he couldn't communicate or take tests or anything in the same way, and he lived in a time when that just meant, oh, then you also have a cognitive delay. So they underestimated who he was based on one of his disabilities. And we do this all the time in real life, but we do it in the scripture too. And if we misunderstand, if we underestimate Mephibosheth's role in the story, then we come up with something like this, that this story is about how God saves Mephibosheth, as if he's like a charity case, right? That he's the one who's lame in both feet. He's the one that has this disability, so he needs to be brought before the king. And the king, in his great generosity, saves him. And that's the end of the story. Is David generous? Sure. Is this a story about how he shows generosity and kindness to Mephibosheth? Absolutely. But I want to propose that this is a story about God and about how God moves forward Israel's story and his plan for Israel. This is a story about his promises and how he saves his promises when it seems like his promises are lost, when it seems like there's no way that that promise can be fulfilled. And sometimes it's fulfilled by the character you least expect. And so we're going to look at that today. 
So what exactly is this story about if it's not about David and his great kindness? Okay. The first clue we get, we have to go kind of rewind in the story. Okay. What we got in the passage that Katie read is sort of the point at which Mephibosheth and David's story meet. But there's a long backstory that we have to get. And so I'm going to rewind the story a little bit without reading a whole lot, but I'm going to like bring you into each scene, okay? And the first clue we get is that at the very beginning of that passage, it says that David wanted to know if there was anyone left of Saul's line so that he could show kindness for the sake of Jonathan. So we have new characters, right? Saul and Jonathan, right? That we need to go back to and understand. And so the story is like this, if you remember. Saul is the king, right? And David secretly gets anointed as the king, right? He's young. He doesn't seem to fit the picture of a king, right? He's kind of skinny. He's a shepherd, right? It's like, yeah, he doesn't look like the king, but he gets anointed secretly as he's going to be the one that overtakes the kingdom that Saul has. And then he becomes Saul's armor bearer, right? And then he defeats Goliath. And then he overtakes the armies of Saul. And he is so successful in all of this that like when they even come back from the wars, right? Everyone's singing and dancing and telling the world that David has slain his 10,000s and Saul his thousands. And Saul gets angry because he's like, who is this guy, right? Like, who does he think he is? David knows he's gonna be the next king. Saul grows more and more angry with the fact that this person is getting all of this glory that should be the king's. And so he sets out to kill David, right? But there was a promise at play. God promised that David would be king. And all of Israel's future depends on whether David becomes king or David doesn't become king. That's the point of the story. And so you have this story that you're watching as you read it, and you're like, how on earth is God going to accomplish this? How is he going to bring this little shepherd boy to be the king when he has no way to accomplish it? How is that going to happen? And it happens through a really unlikely friendship, right? Saul's son, Jonathan, becomes best friends with David. And Jonathan and David love each other. It says Jonathan loves David like he loves himself. We've heard that in the Bible before, right? Or we'll hear it later in the New Testament. The idea of loving another like yourself. Jonathan did that. That's how he loved David. And so David comes to Jonathan and he's like, your dad's trying to kill me. Like, bro, this is happening. He's trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, not my dad. Right? Like, that wouldn't be. He tells me everything. I, I, that, that wouldn't happen. And so they devise a test. And it's centered around the king's table. We just heard about the king's table, right? Mephibosheth was invited to eat at the king's table for the rest of his life. But in this part of the story, David is invited to Saul's table. And David says, but watch. We're gonna go to the, I'm not going to go to the table, but you are. I'm gonna go into hiding. And you're gonna see that King Saul grows angry because he's not inviting me to his table for safety. He's inviting me to his table for violence. That's not the picture of what the king's table should look like, right? God demands that his kings live out justice and righteousness. 
He says that's what God's throne is built on. That's what God's reign is built on, is justice and righteousness. And that's how you to live. That means do right by the people in your kingdom. Live justly with them. Live rightly with them. And Saul is not that kind of king. And David's trying to tell his son that this king, his dad, is not a just and righteous one. So they devise this test. Jonathan goes to the table. David goes into hiding. And the first day goes by, he's not at the king's table. And the king's kind of like, well, whatever. Maybe something came up. The next one, the next day he's not at the table, he takes notice and he asks Jonathan, why, why is he not here? Where is David? What's going on? And then he grows more and more angry to the point that he throws his spear at Jonathan, his own son, as if to kill him because he recognizes he has taken sides with his enemy, David. So Jonathan goes to David, right? And he warns him and says, yeah, you're right. My dad is gonna kill you. You should flee. And it's within that friendship and in that moment that we get a glimpse of the promise that was made that affects our story all these years later with Mephibosheth. Right before they set up the test, they made a promise to each other, Jonathan and David. Jonathan said, I will protect you. If my dad truly is trying to cause you harm, I'll tell you. And if I don't, let God deal with me harshly because God will stand between you and me as the witness because this is a, God, a, a promise God is making in our midst and we're saying yes to. I will tell you if my dad wants to hurt you, and if I don't, let him judge me harshly. And David, for your part, if I tell you, if I warn you and you get to flee into safety, you will forever show kindness to me and my generations after me. And at the end of that passage, it says that God would be the witness between the two of them for every generation, from between my descendants and yours. That is quite the promise. That there would be kindness shown between these two for generations. I can't control what my son does after me, <laughs> right? How can they promise that this would be the case, that for generations this is how it would happen? Only if God's a part of it could you feel confident enough to promise a thing like that. They were convinced that God was going to help them accomplish this promise. We then fast forward in the story and we end up at 2 Samuel 4.4. Can I please get that passage on the screen? It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. There it is again. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. The news that they're talking about is that Jonathan and Saul had died, right? Within this story, there's this great promise. But one of the reasons I love it so much 
is that it's full of all of the right parts of storytelling that you should have. One of the things that comes up in this like a couple of different times is there's these amazing cliffhangers where you're wondering how on earth can God accomplish the thing that was promised, right? So you first have this promise between these friends. And what happens after the promise, right? We're promising this thing to each other. He warns David and David, it says, flees. And Jonathan goes back to the city. The friends are separated, potentially forever. What's going to happen? I love movies and I love cliffhangers. Like I absolutely love them. And that's weird, right? Because like in an age where you can just like watch the next show and just binge and just watch the next one and you don't have to have cliffhangers, right? I love the cliffhangers. Sometimes like I purposely not go to the next and like I want to see it. Like I want to wait, I want to feel that thing, right? I remember as a kid, I loved those old Batman shows like those television ones with like the bang, pow, you know, those kind of things. And like, I just loved them. But at the end of every one, they would say like, is Robin going to escape, right? Is Batman going to get there in time? Right? And it was like, they, they just feed into that like love of cliffhangers, right? Like maybe they won't. Maybe Robin won't escape and maybe Batman won't get there in time. Like, I don't know, that might actually happen, right? And I would just like, ugh. And it's like, tune in. Tomorrow, same bat channel, same bat time, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna do it because like, I wanna know. Like maybe those things won't happen, right? So like I eat, I eat those things up, like that cliffhanger. And so the first cliffhanger we get, right, is like he warns Jonathan or he warns David and they split up. Can a promise made between two friends for generations actually be accomplished when they split up? And then we get this picture. Mephibosheth is five years old and Jonathan dies and Saul dies in battle, right? Does Mephibosheth even know there was a promise? He's five. It was done in secret. Why is he fleeing? If he knew there was a promise that the king, the new King David would show kindness, why flee? He's fleeing because they are afraid. At that time, it was pretty wise, if you become the new king, you get rid of all the people who were family members or loyal to the old king, because you never know when they might try to take that throne back. And so his nurse understands that, and his nurse is like, we gotta go. So she grabs, little five-year-old Mephibosheth and they run and they're fleeing and somewhere amidst the fleeing, he falls and he gets injured in his feet. And it's the thing that causes this disability that he's then named by and identified by throughout the rest of his life. This is the Mephibosheth we're talking about, the one who is lame in his feet over and over and over. And he goes into hiding, right? And he's there for a long time. Our text that Katie read says that he had a son so he's in hiding for a long time, from five until he had a son. I don't know what age that was, but for a while, right? Because he's afraid. It even says that when David, like in our, in our text, when David calls him to talk with him, when he finds out that he still lives, it says he was afraid, and David says, don't be afraid, right? He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so we get this other cliffhanger in this moment, right? 
Mephibosheth is fleeing. And what's going to happen to the promise? In our passage, we get a couple of things that I want to point out in chapter 9. It starts off with the idea that he's lame in both feet. One might assume that the reason it says that is because he's not actually a threat to the throne. How could that guy actually be a threat to David's throne? So we should read it and go, ah, so everything's fine. (laughs) But remember, David wasn't exactly a threat to the throne. He didn't have the right kingly image. And so we start picking up on this thing where Mephibosheth and David's story mirror each other. The next one we get is Mephibosheth says, who am I but a dead dog that you would take notice of me? You know who else said that? David to Saul a long time ago. And he says, I'm a dead dog. Why would you ever show kindness to me? Why do you come after me is what he's saying. Why would you come and fight after me? I'm like a dead dog or a flea. Both of them are recognizing that before the king, they have no power. They have no authority. They are nothing. Some might assume that the dead dog reference came in reference to the feet thing, but it didn't. It came in reference to the power thing. I am not the king. So you get this other one, and it's building this anticipation. Oh, I thought that the guy with the feet thing wasn't a threat to the throne, but this is following the exact same storyline as David's, and we know what happened then. He got the throne. The next one is an invitation to the king's table, right? So that I can show you kindness. It would be pretty unwise of David to actually do that. Invite the heir to the throne, to your table. Why would you do that? If not to cause him harm, if not to use your table as a way to cause him violence, which is what happened to him with Saul. So why not just replay that? Why not just do that again? And so as we read this, we're wondering, like, is this the moment we're going to see David's just like Saul, right? Or will he remember the promise? Or as a king, will he not? And this is where I think we need to give David some incredible, like, props. He could have seen someone in hiding, that no one else knew about, who was lame in his feet. And he could have said, oh, cool, we'll just leave him over there. We'll just leave him in Lodabar, right? He's got a kid. He's gro- he hasn't tried to take the kingdom so far. Like, maybe we just leave him over there. So he brings him in. He invites him to his table, right? And then at the end of chapter 9, it says, what? That he... Mephibosheth eats at the king's table always. And he was lame in both feet, (laughs) right? Once again, like ends the chapter with it. I'm like, really? Do you have to do it right there? Like, can't you just say he's eating at the king's table? But you get this beautiful picture and you're like, it's the happy ending, right? Like there's the other part of the story. It's this beautiful, happy ending. We've had these cliffhangers along the way. We're wondering if God can complete the promise. And it, David is. He's inviting him to the table. And it's a place where it's 
peace and justice and righteousness. It's safety. And he doesn't just eat there as an honored guest. He eats there as one of his sons. As one of his sons. Jonathan, his best friend, who promised him all those years ago, his son will sit at his table as if his own son. That is such a beautiful friendship and such a beautiful wrapping up of the whole thing. I love it. It's so, so good. And I want to just like sit on the idea for a second as one of his sons. I remember at the nonprofit that I worked at, we had a young woman who had a cognitive disability and she used to go to this salon and everyone loved her at the salon. And one of our jobs was to help people get a job in the community. And so one day this salon called us up and said, we would love to give Kat this job. I said, great, what job is it? Well, I thought she could like sit in the chair and then when people come, she could just talk to them. Went, okay, all right. So is that a job that exists? Oh, no, no, like, no. I'm like, okay. So it's like a new job you're creating for her. So like, what would the job description be? I just told you. Like, she'd sit there, and as people came in, she'd like, people just love talking with her. I was like, oh, I see. This happens a lot. You want a mascot. She was like really offended, right? Which was my point. <laughs> like, I, I kind of wanted to offend her a little bit. Like, I was offended at her ask. And she's like, what? Like, no, I don't. I go, well... It's not a real job, though. Like, can we make it a real job? Then I'm like, all down. She's like, oh, you're right. I do want a mascot. I'm like, right. You love her, I have no doubt. But you want her at your table as a mascot, right? That's not at all what David's doing. Like, as one of my sons. As one of my sons, right? That's the beautiful picture. And I wish we could, like, tie it up right there. But I also love that we can't. So, like, if you go to the movies now, right, and you go, I know, all of my things seem to be about movies. If you go to a movie, and let's say it's like a Marvel movie, right, and what do you do after the movie's over? You wait, right? You, that's the weirdest thing in movie going now, right? But you wait, and you wait a long time, and you watch all the scrolling, or you're, like, on your phone until, like, the scrolling's done, right? And you're like, what is even, are those names, right? And it's going through, and then you're, like, waiting because there's another scene, Right? The post-credit scene, and if you're lucky, you get two, right? <laughs> and ours has two. Okay. Do we have a slide for the next, um, I think it's chapter 16, yeah. So here's our next scene. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, here was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? So just to set this up really quick, David's in battle, okay? And Ziba shows up with all of these things to support him. When David had gone a short distance beyond, oh, sorry, where are we at? Uh, there we go, Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who became exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where's your master's grandson? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to him, remember Ziba's his like helper. He says, oh, Mephibosheth's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks that today the Israelites will restore to him his grandfather's kingdom. 
betrayal. That's a really good post-credit scene. Introducing betrayal. Mephibosheth actually is, that one with the lame feet, he was a threat to your throne all along. And the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth then is now yours. Take it all. If he wants to do that to me, you can have it all. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. Mephibosheth, dang it. (laughs) He was a threat after all and none of us saw it coming, right? Let's go to the next one. So 2 Samuel 19, and to set this up, David is coming back from that battle. He's just lost his son, Absalom, in the battle that they're fighting. And everyone in Israel, in Jerusalem, they're anxious all across Israel. They're anxious, wondering, will the king return or is it not safe for him to do so? And they're waiting for the king to come back. And then he does. And everyone's excited that the king is back. David is back, and they all come to meet him. So does Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson. He also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet. He hadn't trimmed his mustache. He hasn't washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. Mephibosheth is a hot mess. (laughs) When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, my Lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and I'll ride on it so I can go be with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me and he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. My Lord, the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death for my Lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I believe you. I order you and Ziba to divide the land. What? (laughs) What? Like, we just find out Mephibosheth wasn't the betrayer. Ziba is, and he gets half the land. What is that about? And like, the disability advocate in me wants to go, "Uh uh-uh. We're going to have a fight, right? We're going to talk about this one. You know what that's tied to? David also had a promise with Saul a long time ago that said his people will be cared for. God saves his promises. He always fulfills them, even when it looks like they're going to be lost or there's no way to fulfill the thing. Not because the person actually always deserves the fulfillment of the thing, but because God fulfills his promises, period. So Ziba is gonna get half the land. But Mephibosheth says to the king, let him have it all. Let him take it all. Now that my Lord, the king, has returned home safely. Mephibosheth loved David like he loved himself, just like his dad. There was a second half to the promise that Jonathan and David made to each other a long time ago. The promise that all of Israel's future depended on, if David could become king, was dependent on this promise between the unlikeliest of friends. 
that for generations they would do these things for one another. If Mephibosheth doesn't, that promise was a lie. If he tries to take the throne, it's a lie. And he says to him, do to me what you need to, but I would not betray you. I love you like my father loved you. I love you like myself. David isn't the only hero in the story. So is Mephibosheth, the one with the feet thing. <laughs> right? He's just as much part of Israel's story. When they read this text, when they talk about it, when they share the story, it's not just David, it's David and Mephibosheth. This is his story as much as David's, as much as Israel's. And he's not a like secondary part to it. He's at the center of it. Because there is not one person or one promise that God makes that is insignificant. There's not a single person who is so insignificant in the scope of what God's doing that he does not stop everything to fulfill the promise to that person. If he made it, he'll do it. He will always do it. Mephibosheth is proof of it. And I love it because you know what? I'm rather insignificant too. And God says, I fulfill my promises to you. We're going to transition to the communion table. What a picture, right? Invited to the king's table. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, you know who else is invited to the king's table? All of us. Jesus even uses the picture, says the kingdom of heaven is like a king that invites everyone to his table. And you know who else is, is, is at the table? People with feet stuff. Everyone's at the table. Everyone gets to be at the table. Because the king's table is a place of justice and righteousness for all. It's a place of peace and safety for all. That's the point of the king's table. And we get to be there. And as we come to this communion table today, and we have the wine that represents the blood of Christ shed for us, and we have the bread elements that represent his body being shed for us. That is the ultimate depiction of justice and righteousness for us who sit at his table. So that we can always sit at his table as his daughters and as his sons. Not mascots, not something extra, not an honored guest, but as his daughters and sons. That's the table we come to. That's the one we eat at forever and will eat at forever because we have a good king, the best of kings. David, dang it, if we fast forward just two more chapters, we see he's not the best of kings. Even he messes up. But our king does not. Our king cannot. And he fulfills this promise right here for everyone in this room. As we come to it today, may we come to it with the same 
attitude that Mephibosheth did. I need nothing else. Let him have it. I need nothing else because I have what matters most. The king. Let's pray. Jesus, our king, thank you for the invite to your table. Thank you that you make us sons and daughters of your father. Thank you for the story of Mephibosheth that paints this picture of what your kingdom is like and how we are to love and treat one another and see one As we come to this table, would you remind us of what it costs you to invite us to the table? That we might show the proper gratitude. by yourself or together. You can take some time to uh, sit and